When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey, what's up? Welcome to Beyond the Scenes, the daily show podcast that goes a little deeper into segments and topics that originally aired on the show. If the daily show is is your Uber, this is that tiny little water bottle you get for free during the ride. You know how them drivers have them little peppermints and stuff, the little free extra stuff that's right there. And I'm the relentless chatty driver. Okay, that's maybe not the best analogy, but you get what I'm trying to say to you. Let's dive right in before you cancel this ride. Today, we're discussing a topic that Trevor covered back in 2020 when Kamala Harris became the first ever black woman to be nominated for vice president. Now, Fox News journalists didn't skip a beat to claim she wasn't black enough. The segment illustrates how white people have tried to define blackness for centuries. Roll the clip! What's especially ironic about these people trying to exclude Kamala from blackness is that it's the reverse of what white America did for centuries, defining as many people as black as possible, whether they wanted it or not. Color and who qualifies as black, who qualifies as white, has historically been policed not by those who were the targets of oppression, but by those who set up the system of oppression. In America, blackness was defined by that auction block. You were black if you could be put on that auction block and sold as property. Following the abolition of slavery, some Americans feared a rise in interracial relationships. So states began passing laws to make sure that any child with even one drop of Negro blood would be classified as Negro and denied the rights of white people. This became known as the one drop rule. The one drop rule was an attempt to save the so-called purity of the white race. By 1925, nearly every state had a form of the one-drop rule on their books. All you need is one person, five generations back, who is black, and that is enough to make you black. Seriously? One black person in your family has the power to make you black, but all the white people in your family can't make you white? If anything, I feel like this was also racist to white people. I mean, imagine that. They were basically saying 10 white sperm is not as powerful as one black sperm? That is an insult to white sperm, and I'm offended on behalf of all my white brothers and sisters. Today I'm joined by Emmy-nominated Daily Show writer Ashton Womack and author of the book One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. Dr. Yaba Blay, they're gonna both help us answer the question, can you define blackness? Ashton, how are you doing today, brother? I'm good, brother. Always a pleasure being with you, man. Dr. Blay, thank you for gracing us with your presence and also embarrassing us with all of them wonderful books in the background. The people listening can't see it, but you got them books. And I know you read them books because they ain't color-coded. Much of course, respect. of course. It's kind of like the given background for academics. You got to show your books. Yeah, but I don't respect people who color-code that book. That just means you put them Doing books up much. there for style. Yeah, two yeah, of them might be a phone book, you know? <laughs> but that's legit you. books up there. Legit. <laughs> So let's get right into it. White people have used many tactics to keep black people in line. We saw that with the history of the one drop rule and we see it in policing today. How have methods that white people have used to police and categorize us affected the way we operate within this society? Ashton, I'll start with you. In many, many ways, it's affected us. I mean, first off, we don't even get to control our image in the media. You know, we, we, we're finally, us, this existence is, is us taking reins of our, our uh, media image. But before it was white people who controlled our images. So they, it, it was what we would look at. We were like, oh, is that us? And that created 
that creates an image of yourself. They, they were creating the images of ourselves that we ingested and then we in turn em emulated those images. The best example I can use for that is like, um, I remember I went to schools all over across America. I went to bad schools, I went to good schools. I went to the bad schools in, in bad neighborhoods and ghetto neighborhoods or whatever you want to call it. It, it. Kids, they just acted like how they were. They acted how they were. But then when I went to like the middle class schools with the middle class black kids, instead of acting like their, the, 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 the class they come from, the social class they come from, they just emulated the black blackness that they saw on TV. So they'd be like well off, but they're acting super hood or acting ways that images that were given to them on the television. And that wasn't, I feel like that was one of the ways that uh, how whiteness affects uh, our, our own image of ourselves, them putting out imagery that we then emulate. And even if it's not true to yourself, and see, I'm itching over here. So let me jump in real quick. Oh, jump, it's, jump, it's, jump. It's, Come it's, on, Dr. It's, Blake. It's the word acting. So I feel like we're going to cover a lot. But like this whole conversation, there's so many things we're going to cover, hopefully. There's the history of how race is defined. Um, it's the problematics even of projecting race as an identity to an entire group of people and expecting us to act a uniform way. But even that question of you know, as you said, acting uh, their 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 class, I think, something to the extent that you said, right? And yeah. so for me, that's an immediate, well, what's that mean, right? For Black mm. people especially, what does it mean to act hood versus act middle class versus act uppity versus act bougie? Like all of those categories weren't necessarily created by us to begin with. So then when you have the intersection of race and class, these are different things happening, right? Some could argue that whatever we define as hood is black culture, regardless of where mm -hmm. you fall on an economic hierarchy. Like you like potato salad at the cookout. I don't care how much money you make. Right. And you don't eat everybody's potato salad. You know, to speak to black people <laughs> when you walk into a room, it doesn't matter what, you know, how much money your mama makes or how much money you make or what college you went to. There's certain cultural mores that we all, I think globally, right. Agree to. And so I think what ends up happening um, is the intersection of race and economic status and all the intersectional axes of our identity has us confused and has us even having these conversations, right? Okay, so then on the other end of the stick, you know, I was a child that was raised by two college educators. Between my two parents, there were five college degrees in the home. So I wasn't allowed to go, uh, uh, used to could. So there was always a stress on verbiage and vernacular. But then the moment I came from the white middle school back to the black middle school in seventh grade, ugh, you talk like white folk. Why are you talking all proper? How much have we been bamboozled ourselves into restricting what we even know blackness to be because it is defined by whites? And when I say white people, I'm talking the media. I'm talking... Like, even something as simple as who they choose to interview for the eyewitness. I seen what happened. They was over there, and then the thing, then the car flipped up. Like, how much does media play a role in influencing how Black people define Blackness? I mean, I would open our arms wider and say, you're not talking about white people. You're talking about white supremacist ideology, right? You're talking Ooh. about historical way of thinking about ourselves that is very much informed by the power and privilege that has been uh, I was going to say bestowed, but I really want to say taken by white folks, right? So they've come to define what white is, what good is, what black is, what bad is, what ghetto is. What They've come to give us all of these categories of behavior. And so us wanting to be free, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Wanting to have access to all of the better places. Like, and I'm all over the place, but stay with me. No, no, me. no. Keep going. Keep going. I... And very black capital B in a lot of ways, politically, uh, for my political kind of views on the world we live in, especially the country that we live in. And so in my family, folks might call me, you know, the radical one. Right. And so let's just say my community of folks, my friends, we all tend to have similar kind of ideas and see ourselves connected similarly particularly in our relationship to this country. But one thing that fascinates me is for all my radical, natural haired, fist bumping folk, how many of us, and by us I mean them, send their school, send their children to predominantly white schools, right? And so on the weekends, you might be with auntie and uncle, and we talking about RBG, and you know we talking about all manner of things and trying to situate you in your blackness. But 
on a day to day, you are one of three, one of 10, one of however in the school because your parents, even your radical black parents believe that in order for you to get a good education, I can't send you to Philadelphia public schools. I got to send you to Germantown Friends or I got to pay tuition at another space. And I hopefully will supplement your blackness when you come home. But we and, and, and you know, in fairness, it is a fact that our public school systems are not equally yoked. Right. So then what do you do as a black parent if you want your child to be, quote unquote, well educated or to have the opportunity to go on to to college or, or higher ed? You want them to be grounded as best as possible. And so we're constantly put in these spaces of like, how do we make these decisions? And some of us end up feeling like we, quote unquote, have sold out. Right. In 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 order to take advantage of the, quote unquote, best opportunities, if that makes sense. Yeah, this is why. I'm going to send my kid to Dr. Umar's school and, <laughs> and okay, solve all those problems a, right there. Uh, that's so. a whole separate conversation don't we have to explain like, to people. Don't wake it up. <laughs> Dr. Umar is. Uh, but Dr. Blake, when we see people like now VP Kamala Harris and former President Barack Obama, they run for office, they win, and it's, you know, they, they win some of the highest seats in the country. They always get a little extra pressure put on their shoulders from the black community. They, 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 they always have to carry the burden of hope. You know, the, 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 we, we hope that this means our issues are finally be taken care of. One of us is in there. One of us is in it. Finally, it's about time. But Dr. Blake, why is it harmful for people to assume that every black person that makes it to power is a political seat for all black people? Or do well, you even think that's harmful? I would just say that all the views expressed here are my own. And I know that the blacks might not agree. Oh, come on with it. Clock in now. You didn't already shook the table with white supremacy. Come on now. Clock in. It's hard because we have to also understand the danger of talking about the black community. All skin folk and kin folk, right? So for me, the fact that no judgment, love them. The fact that Barack Obama and Kamala Harris aspire to be in those positions says something to me about their relationship to a white supremacist ideology. That might not be fair, but the fact that you want to be in power of this country, the fact that you want us to pledge allegiance to this flag, the fact that you want to uphold the articles in this uh, uh, constitution, we're not the same, right? Now, in fairness... Should we have black folks in these positions? Sure. But we shouldn't. We and by I mean, us looking through the screens, we should not assume that that means that they'll now be able to bring us with them because they're also. Let me use your friend Clarence Thomas as an example. Uh-oh. In my opinion, part of the ways in which he's been able to stay in the position and have the positions that he's had, it's almost like he's had to perform more disdain for black people to somehow prove to white folks that he's like them. Mm-hmm. Right. So just because you're in a position of power doesn't mean that I'm bringing y'all with us. I'm going to be uh, uh, bringing our whoever our is right. Our needs to the table. Sometimes I think they even have to perform a particular level of anti-blackness just so white folks will trust them. Yeah. I can't remember who said the quote, but I remember it kind of shift gave me perspective, not in a good way. It just gave me more perspective of why like, I kept asking Brock, don't do nothing. Brother, what's the my brother's keeper program? You know those programs. The the, the 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 things we did get. When I look at it as a whole, I was like, that's not a lot for you know the first black president. That's well, what's kind of what nothing. What can he do though? But right? that's when someone I heard someone. I think it was. I don't know if it was Cornell was. I don't want to attribute it the wrong quote. But it was basically Barack Obama is not the president of Black America. Barack Obama is the president of America, and America is you know it's a white country, guys, and so. Uh, you got to It's the same when we see like Democrats and we think like well, you're a Democrat, but then they shift towards the center. You got to shift towards shift towards the right to get that to even be president. You got to appeal to some white people, white people. But, and, I, and again, I want to just I'm going to reiterate this throughout our conversation because I don't want us to focus on people as much as I want us to remember ideology. As uncomfortable as it might say be to say the words out of your mouth, we are talking about white supremacist ideology. This is not about white people because you said America's a white country. It's going to be somebody in the comments that says, well, it's this percentage of this and this percentage no, of that you. and people of color. Okay, fine. I'm not talking about the color 
right, of the people physically. How are we thinking? What is that constitution built upon? How do we think about those quote unquote people of color? The fact that we even have to have the language people of color normalizes and centers whiteness. The fact that we have diversity, equity, and inclusion leaves whiteness over here. We're going to National Geographic, look at all y'all other people. Whiteness is the norm. Whiteness is the center and everything else has to make do. Is your perspective rooted in the belief that this is a system that cannot be fixed or infiltrated or in some degree, bit by bit, repaired? Is the system in which this this white supremacist system and under which we all agree we exist under as black people, is it irreparable? And if not, how do you fix it from the political side using their rules? Thank you for saying that. It makes me uncomfortable. I always cringe when I have to answer that question because I want to be able to say, yes, let's burn it down. We can fix it. Right. I don't want to feel as uh, it's a defeating and deflating experience. You know, the more we are faced with with particular realities every single day, the ways in which white folks get off the hook, you know, it, it can be defeating and deflating. Howsoever, I do want to believe and I do believe. Bit by bit, chip by chip, every generation, we are all making a difference, right? But we have to temper our expectations. Are we going to fix it and dismantle white supremacy in our lifetime? Likely not. It doesn't mean we don't stop chipping away at it. Dr. Blake, (laughs) respectfully, I just think you're being very pessimistic. We passed body camera laws, and granted, the cops haven't turned them on yet, but eventually... They'll turn them on. So in the meantime, we record the police. And I know they passing laws now to make it illegal to record the police. And they got gerrymandering law. Damn, Ashley, I, mean, I think she's right. She may be nah, right, bro. Listen, when, you can, when you can get, a, get away with storming the Capitol and we come to find out who the leaders are and they'll be free. And you can get away with shooting one black man 90 times. Yes. Oh, and it doesn't even get. I can tell just a personal anecdotal story that just happened on July 4th. At the in New York, going to see fireworks with my mom and sister. Uh, it's all these beautiful people of color. July 4th, American Independence Day. There's literally fireworks in the air blowing up. And this lady is she looks like Clarence Thomas's wife, literally just look like Clarence Thomas's wife. She's getting kicked out. She's getting escorted out by the cops because she's like calling people slur. She did not like seeing all this. Be- the beautiful it was beautiful. It was all kinds of diverse people out there celebrating America, you know, as hard as that is. You know, I love I, I love everybody. But, you know, as a person of color minority in this country, you know, you're like, all right, all right, I'm going to do it. And so when she saw all these beautiful people celebrating, looking different shades, she lost her stuff, started calling everybody slurs. And in Fourth of July, this this Fourth of July with fireworks in the air, I had a white woman look me dead in my eyes and call me uh, a nigger. And uh, with and it felt like America condoned it. There were fireworks in the air. It was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And what happened was there was a black cop right next to it. And the whole crowd was like, oh, oh, this is how this is how nothing. It, it feels like nothing can be done by, by racism. The black cop, when they go, oh, she called him an N word. The I mean, she, 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 she said N word. She called him an N word. The black cop goes, who she called an N word? I know she ain't called me an N word. And he goes, no, no, she called him. And he was like, oh, cool. Uh, and then because uh, like, he got to keep his job though, don't he? Because he's like, he's protecting this country. He got to go to the locker room with them cops. He got to ride with them boys, right? And I feel and this one, this is the frustration, right? But also, I know you're gonna be tired of talking around me, Ashton. I'm coming back to language because again, it connects to white supremacist ideology. I mm-hmm. refuse to call myself a minority. I don't care what your statistics show. Mm-hmm. What you say out of your mouth impacts how you feel in your body and vice versa, right? And so if you Mm. see yourself as a minority, you might have your head down acting like a minority in this country. You might concede that this is y'all's country. And that is a complete revisionist idea of how things have gone down. You know, language, people of color, I get it. This is what I'm saying. It's no judgment for real, for real. We are trying. But I'm also here to ask us to think critically about what we say and how we do things. For Black folks, our particular relationship to this country, we can't afford to be piled in with people of color. We need our own black folks. Okay, to that point of not being piled in with people of color and black people needing to be their own separate operated entity, how much pressure do you think is put on black people that are in positions of political power to portray blackness to the public 
while remaining, you know, on the level with the white politicians that are in office who they got to make the deals with, much like that black cop where, all right, you need the trust of the black community. You want the love of the black community. So you got to make sure that you're doing something. You got to show up and eat the chicken. You got to come to Essence Fest and wave to the people. I I hosted Essence (laughs) Fest two years in a row. And I can't tell you the number of politicians, not just at the national level, but at the state and Senate level, who was coming and going, hey, y'all, I got y'all back. But also I got to go deal. Because, you know, you look at Stacey Abrams is a great example. It ain't black people alone who put her in office, but it is black people who put her in office. If you get what I'm saying? I do. So how much pressure is on the backs of those politicians? And is that a fair pressure for the black community to put at their feet? It's an enormous amount. I can't even imagine the amount of pressure. Um, Is it fair? Maybe not. But I think what black folks are responding to is y'all come to the church, y'all come to the sorority and fraternity meetings, y'all come to homecoming, y'all come when y'all are campaigning, mm-hmm. and you are a man, you are a woman, you're going to do, you're going to, you, all right, cool, we're going to rally up like how we do. We're going to organize, because you know how we do. We're going to organize like how we do, and we're going to show up, and we're going to vote for you, sister. Power to the polls. Let's go. Right? We're going to get all of our people, ain't never voted before, come on out, we got a, one of us. We get on the bus. We <laughs> driving. We don't care that they gerrymandered half of the state and it's only one polling station in the next 200 miles. No, we're we going to get you there. Yeah, we, we can't drink no there. water at the uh, the entire time we standing in line, but we going to be. <laughs> we going to be there to vote. Right. I remember the night President Obama was uh, uh, elected in and it was it felt like it was late. We were out at a bar. I mean, people were crying. People were overwhelmed. I felt like it was an out-of-body experience the next day. At the time, I was working at a predominantly white institution. White folks didn't know how to behave. They didn't know how they should be responding. Some of them overdid it. Some of them felt like they were in mourning. And Black folks were just like, don't talk to me today. Because we felt like OJ verdict day. It was (laughs) No, I remember. Absolutely, right? And so I think coming back to that question of is it fair? I think black folks are trying to cash in on the work that we did to get you in office. Now you in office and all of a sudden we gotta understand all these things. Be honest when you're campaigning. Let us know that you can only do so much because at the end of the day, it's still their house, but you're gonna do what you can. Don't come telling us what you're about to do. Knowing good and well, you can't do it by yourself. It's this country. After the break, Dr. Blay and Ashton, I want to get into how we as a community sometimes like try to police each other's blackness and see what are the things that led us to this place, the the causes that have led to this effect. Is that effect with an E or a? I don't. It's talking. I'm talking. You can't tell. It's beyond the scenes. We'll be right back. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Dr. Blay, how can I, how can I, what's the safest way to enter this part of the conversation? <laughs> how do we as a community, I don't like blackness being policed. All right. I'm going to just start right there. If I'm just using my own personal experiences, Okay. 
I'm a black kid that loves baseball. I was in chess club, but I also played at the park. Shout out to Powderly Park in the west side of Birmingham with Gangster Disciples and Vice Lords. So I grew up seeing a spectrum. I know how to swim. So there are all these things that I saw growing up that to me were just black people doing a thing. So I never saw something as being a black or white thing until I went to visit relatives in more rural parts of Mississippi. And now I'm talking proper. And now you using them big words. You think you know everything. Like, in what ways do we divide ourselves as a people? And does that self-policing of our own blackness, is that a hindrance? Or does that help us define ourselves so that we don't drift into losing our sense of culture? Sure. My first response is going to, it feels like a hindrance right? In the ways that you've explained it, because we are holding on to very narrow ideas of what Blackness is. And I think we have to take it back historically. I feel like as Black folks, and again, I'm using B, capital B, Black. There are some folks that are still lowercase b. Now, when I say capital B, Black, I'm recognizing Blackness as a larger umbrella identity under which everyone of African descent falls, right? So I'm first generation Ghanaian born in New Orleans. My folks in Ghana might not identify as Black because they've never had to, right? It's not until you are forced to be in mixed company that you are now Black or White or Asian or Latino, these conglomerate types of identities. But when you're in Ghana, you're a Khan, you're Ghan, you're, you know, all these other uh, uh, ethnic groups. The blackness happens when you leave that space and now you're in company with other people, right? That being said, how could we, if we're talking about this large umbrella of blackness, right? Holding people of African descent all over the world, we couldn't even begin to say that's black behavior. That's not, I mean, well, they're also, we wash our legs. I can tell you that. We all use soap and washcloths or some other mm-hmm. accoutrement to scrub skin. Play we, spades. We do, <laughs> we do that. You know what I mean? We got a hot sauce. There are certain things that we do all over the world, but playing chess and playing baseball and those things, that's a part of being a Black American, I would say. But I think what happens, particularly when we start doing that North-South divide, because I grew up in the South and then grew, moved up North. And I think that is really... That feels like a historical kind of we's free up here and y'all enslaved down there on both ends in terms of how we think of ourselves. Right. And so y'all uppity up there. Y'all speak different. Y'all got different accents. Y'all do things differently. In the South, we're looking at them as if they're backwards, you know, or closer to the cotton fields. You know, side note, it might not make it in. Everybody loves P-Valley. I just got on the P-Valley. P-Valley, where I'm into it now, second season. But the first scene of this show starts with a trigger for me because it was scenes of a hurricane, assumedly Katrina, right? So I was already annoyed. But then as I continue to watch the show, I'm like, y'all got every Southern accent in this show. You know the difference between a New Orleans accent and a Houston, Texas accent and And an Alabama accent and an Atlanta accent. Y'all got, so it's almost like, this is what it felt like. I could be wrong. I didn't do my research on the show. It almost felt like somebody said, we got to do the South. Y'all go at it. Because you don't respect the space culturally enough to know that there are distinctions. These are cultural distinctions. We say Maine. Right? New Orleans, we say Bauta. We don't say Finna. Who says Finna? Certain people say Finna. I don't say Finna. Right. These are it. Yeah. And, and I think because it is aligned with blackness, all of us negate it. It's not that important. It's crucial. If we really respect blackness as a culture, it's crucial that some people put sugar in spaghetti and some people mix the spaghetti all together. Like black spaghetti is a thing. Right. Yes. Italians don't make spaghetti like how we make spaghetti. I, I just and they don't put fish with theirs either. <laughs> Listen, I don't. Where your where look? Where are your people from? Y'all eat fish with spaghetti. I got oh, meatballs yeah. in mine. Is that, is that oh, long? Yeah. But it's just to say for me, and, and and this is coming. I'm I'm somebody. My work is on blackness. My PhD is in black studies. Right. This is my joy, and I get really excited about seeing how we're connected all over the world. And so for me, these cultural things that we we don't give credit to and we don't see the power in that that saddens me because we don't see the power in our own culture. 
culture, we've allowed ourselves to believe all that this white supremacist ideology has projected onto us, that we have no culture. Yet and still, historically, y'all went around the world stealing everybody's culture. Who didn't have culture? Well, Doctor, can I actually, actually, about like, I remember the, the first uh, question I had, or point I had, or point I had, was about, um, I, I made it a class issue, saying mm-hmm, mm-hmm. poor people act like this, middle class, you and, which I, I was just poorly phrased. I, the way you described it is like, blackness can be, there's a whole spectrum of blackness, which is what I was, which is how I was trying to describe it using, mm-hmm. like you said, language is important. And, but that, it, my question is, you, do you think the media and, and, and media in general shows the lowest essence of blackness and then people, no matter yes. what, where you are amongst yes. that spectrum, because that's the main, that's the main, uh, uh, yes. uh, that's what we emulate. That's what we copy. And the to lowest be clear, spe- when we think about it from a production standpoint, creative standpoint, it would be so easy to say, look at how white people putting black people on TV. A lot of times that's us folk. A lot of times these are black directors and producers and EPs. Because you know why though? Again, think capitalism. What's going to sell? If the large majority of your audience is a white audience, which blackness do they want to see? How do they maintain their delusion of supremacy, right? If not by being entertained by the lowest of us by the ghettoists of us. They have to maintain the idea that they are superior to us. So let us continue to project these notions of black people being hood, not being able to speak, killing each other, sliding up and down the pole. And I don't have shame about that. What's so interesting, I'm thinking of Sister Monique. She came out and it was a whole rally around sisters wearing bonnets in public. I was so annoyed by that, right? Not because I myself want to walk outside with a bonnet, but like, I just don't think we can afford to be out here doing these public kind of let's get us folk together because ultimately what you're saying is we got to act right in front of these white folks. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. You think they looking at what you're wearing before they shoot you 90 times? It doesn't change anything. And so we get so caught up in the surface of things. We do the code switching. We, we, we want to live in certain neighborhoods. We drive certain cars. If we got Gucci, we want it right here on our chest. I want to make sure you see that it's Gucci, right? <laughs> because we know that there's value afforded, right? Um, um, to the performance, I think, of value. And to me, that that's, that's what's... I, I, we can't afford to be doing that because ultimately when we're not thinking critically about it, we're not recognizing how we are supporting a white supremacist ideology. We're not dismantling it. We're not pushing back against it. We're saying, you're right. Let's act right, y'all. Instead of saying this whole way of thinking is out of order. I think Ashton and I are going to have the same answer to this question, but I'm asking it to you first, Dr. Blake. When we think about our upbringing and how that affects how we view Blackness and what is Blackness, was there ever a time in your life where you didn't feel Black enough, where you felt disassociated from the black mainstream, however you define it. Yeah, I would say in that regard, there were times where I didn't feel black American, right? Because I grew up in a Ghanaian home, right? And so though I saw myself connected at home, we eat with our hands, you know, we listen to a different type of music. And I feel like I've always been just interested in, let me connect the dots so I don't feel, you know, so out of place, you know? And so there were things in New Orleans culture. I'm like, oh, we do that too. It's okra and gumbo. We eat okra stew. You know what I mean? I was always trying to show people we're more alike than we are different. Everybody doesn't doesn't necessarily see things those ways. But yeah, I definitely spent a lot of time. My name, my name is not Yaba. My name is Yaba. But I'm not walking around with a Ghanaian accent. So whatever makes it easy to your tongue, it's Yaba. When I go to Ghana, it's the only place I hear people singing my song to the right tune. And so there's so many ways that I've had to Americanize, I should say, Black Americanize myself. Because of your cultural roots, how did you deal with the Black American divide between Black Americans and Africans, if I'm going to just be 100 about it, where, you know, we would call you slurred and you talk funny and why are you wearing that? And you like the uh, the African booty scratcher, Ashton, I'm sure you're familiar with that Southern... attack phrase had it in my back pocket all third grade yeah yeah and it was like it was such commonplace you know as a black american to view people like yourself as other and not part of the diaspora like that was never taught i'm gonna just be real with you like it was never introduced it definitely wasn't introduced in the school system and unless you had parents that interacted 
with immigrants. They didn't know what the hell. They was too busy telling you, you got to, I march for you, boy. You going to school and you going right. to go to college because right. them white folks was beating on me in the 60s. That's right. And also, it's not even, it's not just that. It's the fact that we've othered ourselves from Africa so much as black people that when we see Africans come over here, it's like, oh, no, you like the commercial I see. You, oh, oh buddy, buddy, we're not or, the same. You like the commercial. Or even... Mm-hmm. I've 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 gotten the sense that for many black Americans there is a resentment, right? Because a lot of and I can speak for West Africans specifically, a lot of West Africans coming to the US and getting quote unquote better jobs. They're going straight to doctor, they're going straight to lawyer, they're going to mm-hmm. certain, you know, an economic status and, and being able to to live in certain areas. This idea that they are coming to take something from you. Right. I've definitely gotten that sense. And and it's true. Like in our West African community in New Orleans, very middle class, upper middle class at that. And so for me, my code switching wasn't even about white people. It was about going from Africa to black America. It was about switching my behavior in that cultural zone to wanting folks to know, like, I'm down like you. So, no, I might not have a grandmama in the project, but. The minute I had the ability to go to the project, I was going to hang out in the project. Like it was almost like I was trying to make sure that I knew what the experiences were about so that you couldn't keep me from them. If so that makes sense. That, that makes me open. I want to know then what is blackness? Because it seems like everybody has a relationship with blackness, no matter how, whether you like some hood, super hood person, you got your own personal relationship with blackness, unless you're some. Uh, some girl, who, somebody who's like, uh, you know, I'm too uh, uh, white for the black people, too black for the white people. Like, it seems like there's a relationship to blackness that every single mm-hmm. black person, yeah. dark skinned person, yeah. melanated person has to deal with. So what is that? Is there an essence we're all trying to achieve? And some so, pureness? Uh, so for me, again, I think that's somebody's work to do, long term work. But I think our confusion, the conundrum is that we're thinking about blackness as a race and not a culture. And so if we were able to take the time to understand what a culture is and what cultural mores are, we would, again, be able to recognize. I hear it all the time when folks go to Ghana, when they go to Jamaica, they're like, we do that. We do that. It's like this, you know, and I, and I say there's a hashtag that I've used everywhere we go. There we are. But you have to be open to seeing yourself in that way. Right. And I think that's the critical thinking and the consciousness shift. You have to be open to making the connections as opposed to drawing the distinctions. We're better seated. Right. Again, not minorities. We are a global majority. So it's in our best interest then to see all of the ways that we are connected to one another as opposed to distinct. I would say for me, if there was a time where I knew I didn't necessarily feel black enough was when I first started doing stand up comedy. Mm. because in 98, you know, off the heels of the Def Jam movement and the rise of BET's Comet View, a lot of Black comedy thrived in stereotypes, not necessarily, not just about the world, but also about Blackness. So Blackness was defined by whatever the collective shared experience was in that particular night or that group of people. So there would be nights where I'd get on stage, you know, and I started when I was 19, so... Mm-hmm. My early jokes were just a 19-year-old black college student. Half them folks in the room is over the age of 50 and and never Mm. went to college. So this book buyback joke, it ain't going to connect with you. (laughs) (laughs) You you had to work. And so the one thing I did gradually learn over time, though, with black people, and we were just talking about the diaspora as my comedy changed, my comedy evolved, is that the one thing we all share— is pain and a struggle and figuring out a way to make it. Whether you still live in the Caribbean or you still live overseas, or if you're a black Brit, whatever it is, you're dealing with some form of struggle. So when I learned how to coach whatever it was I wanted to talk about in the form of here's what I'm dealing with and made it about my form of blackness, people were more, it was, the jokes were more well received versus have y'all ever don't y'all all hate it when you be swimming? And no, I don't get in the pool during a pool party. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of where I felt out of place. Ashton, I don't know, you know, coming up in the black clubs in Houston and Memphis and stuff, if you dealt with that. But for me, right. that was like the first smack in the face of mm. like, oh, Abs- I'm different black. Absolutely. Yeah. Had the exact same experience. You know, one of my mentors is Ali Sadiq. If you know anything about him, he he thrives in, he thinks pressure makes diamonds and he loves going to hood rooms because that pressure made diamonds. And I would go in there, 
same exact thing. I'm a college kid being like, my car is, uh, it's pushed to start. It just takes three people. <laughs> Am I right, guys? And they'd be like, boy, if you don't get that, boy. If, and so it, it, it was, it definitely was a struggle. It made me look at myself like, damn, is my comedy for white people? But no, actually, one, it's like finding myself and just being able to speak from a, you, one, it's, it's two things I, I, I noticed. Black people just like, speak, be real, be real, and they can connect, it's, it's a connection, you can find it. Two, be entertaining, that's it. I got in my head a lot thinking it was me and my two whiteness, no. Once I started being myself more, I started connecting more with audiences, but there was a, a complex in my head for a while with my blackness and relationship with my comedy. And there are, there are also going to be other black folks like you who have similar experiences, you know? So maybe they're your audience. But one thing I also want to come back to something you said, Roy, because um, I hear this a lot when folks think about blackness and they think about the things that are common amongst us, this idea that we all have a common struggle, right? Like no matter where we are across the world. And that is real because white supremacist delusion is global. Global. For me, though, I also want us to balance that out and recognize, you know, people say black girls are magic. That's not to not to take away from our humanity, but that magical piece, because I also love comedy. Right. Mm -hmm. The fact that even through all of these things that y'all have the ability to make people laugh, even while these things are happening, we find a way to come up with all the TikTok dances. Right. We've got the best music. We've got the best. We're still cooking. We're still eating good. We're still having a good time. We're still hugging and kissing and speaking to people on the street that you don't even know. Wishing your baby well at graduation. We're still doing all these things. And I think that's what. They don't understand why we still smiling and laughing and dancing after all that we they couldn't. After all that our ancestors have been through and we still, we're not supposed to be here. We're still here. And not only are we still here, we can have a good time at the same time. There are times where things happen in the world. And I'm like, let me log off of social media because I'm too sensitive. Y'all about to get on my nerves. And then there are times where I'm like, there's so much going on. Let me log in. Let me look at all of the, the, the wackest, ratchetest uh, uh, memes and videos. Let me laugh. It's always, we're always going to have the space to laugh and find joy. So with that, with all of that being said and everything we have unpacked up until this point, how did you decide to write a book on all of this, Dr. Blake? (laughs) This is stressful by your own admission just now. It's sometimes stressful. So I can only imagine the process of unpacking everything to decide where to focus your book. Because like, because because your work focuses on like colorism and beauty and gender and politics. And so with this book, you figured out a way to go beyond that and explore blackness as a whole globally, like how we're all connected. Like, so when you wrote one drop shifting the lens on race, did you know this was going to be a big ass mountain that you was going to have to climb? And why did you still decide to climb the mountain and write (laughs) this book? I didn't know. Um, But step by step, one thing that is a blessing for me, I was trained at Temple University, home of Afrocentricity and uh, African-centered ideology. And we talk about a place where we're not talking about black and white. We talk about African and European. Right. Um, And so it's a very black space. And one of the, the greatest blessings in my training was that I should center myself. Right. In research, so many times folks are encouraged to be objective, whatever that means, that you should separate yourself from the work that you're doing. And this is why you can have black folks doing research about their own communities and using language like them and they. I'm going to say me and us. Right. And so that there there's a literally a shift in my thinking, in my movement when I connect to the work. Right. So. I grew up in New Orleans, and what you should know about New Orleans is that there's a long history of color-coded racial ideology, right? And so, whereas in other places in the world, or in the country, white and black, in New Orleans, it was white, Creole, black, right? And Creole is a larger umbrella, just to say, not fully black. So you could be quadroon, octoroons, quintaroon, all these terms, right? Historically. Historically, literally one quarter black, three quarters white, you know, like that kind of uh, uh, equations. All that to say that historically that meant that blackness seemed to be a punishment. Right. So that if you had any bit of mixing and listen to the language, you got to be 
something else. You didn't have to be black. So blackness was a punishment of sorts. I say that just to preface me growing up. I probably knew that I was dark skinned before I knew how to spell my name because everybody made it a point. Oh, you so black. You so black. You so black. You so black. She black. The black one. Black, 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 black. You real black, 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 black. Like constantly. I knew that I was dark skinned. Right. And what I also knew just on a child's observation, my father taught at Xavier. Right. And so here's an HBCU and many of the students who were sent to Xavier they were brown skinned folks, but a large majority of them were very, very light skinned. Some of them may have identified as Creole. Some could have passed for a, a variety of things. But it's to say, just even as a child, I saw what's the mayor look like, right? What city council look like? What the students at Xavier look like? I could see the power and privilege that was assigned to lighter skin. I could also see how lighter skinned folks treated me. Like I couldn't I wasn't invited to someone who I thought was one of my best friends in, in, in elementary school. I wasn't invited to her birthday party because my mama said I was too black. Yeah. This is a black girl or a, another black child or a white child? I'm going to call her Creole. Creole. That's even worse. Right. Now, to me, Creole is black, but who am I to tell you who you are? Right? Y'all rolling with it, roll with it. But it is to say, <laughs> it was a different experience, and I felt that. We moved from New Orleans to Delaware because my dad went from Xavier to Dell State. And I had a whole different experience coming up north. Now, did I know I was dark skinned? Yes. But then I got, oh, you pretty for a dark skinned girl. Then I had my Foxy Brown era. You know, like it was a different situation up here. And then, of course, the 90s hip hop, you know, we red, black and green. I'm wearing head wraps like my stock is real high because I'm an original African, you know. So, soldier. (laughs) you know, so that was my experience. All of that to say, by the time I got to grad school, moved back to New Orleans and then came back up to go to grad school at Temple, I had an experience with a sister who I wouldn't have called a sister at the time, who was a a grad student at the program. Super, 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 super light. I didn't know anything about her. But what I knew is she would come up to the eighth floor Gladfelter Hall, which was our common area, and she wouldn't speak to people. How you come up here, room full of black people, and you just don't speak? How'd that work? So in my mind, I'm connecting dots. This is how Negroes act in New Orleans. This is how you act. You one of them. You one of those people who thinks that light skin is a skill set. You one of those people who thinks that you, 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 have, you have privilege because you light skin. Check. I don't fool with you. And I did not fool with her. Right. Before she graduated, she got her master's. One of our common professors was like, you got to read Danielle's paper. And I'm like, I'm not reading shit. You got to read Danielle's paper. I read her paper. I come to find out that she, her father's black, mother is white Mennonite from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where she was the blackest thing there. She was really clear that she was black in Lancaster because they told her so. And it got so bad to the point where she dropped out of high school and finished uh, at home, homeschool, GED, right? She came to Temple because she wanted to be around black folks. She wanted to be in Philly with black folks. She wanted to connect with the blackest space. She got a master's in black studies because she wanted to. Right. And she came up there not speaking because she thought we didn't like her. She thought she wasn't black enough. So she was reserving her peace. And I'm like, wow. (laughs) You know, then I had another experience being on a panel with a sister, Rosa Clemente. And. You know, we talk about colorism and diaspora, and she introduces herself. I'm Rosa Clemente, and I'm a black Puerto Rican woman from the South Bronx. And I'm looking at her like, black Puerto Rican? What's that? I just know Puerto Ricans. And she doesn't <laughs> look black for what I thought I knew black as it was at the time, but she was adamant to continue to say black Puerto Rican, black Puerto Rican, black Puerto Rican. And so it just had me thinking like, yo, blackness looks a whole lot of ways in this world, but I'm also very interested in... And again, listen to my own, how I've been impacted for folks who don't have to be black. Why are you choosing blackness? And so the book is about me talking to them. But yeah, like if you don't have to be black, why are you choosing blackness? And so in the book, I interview them about their blackness. And though many of them use different languages, like Danielle identifies as black and Mennonite. There are people who identify as biracial, multiracial, multiracial. Uh, just, you know, different terms, even the, again, the language that we use, wanting to know what does that mean to you to identify as Black and Mennonite or biracial or mixed race? Because in fairness, I've always judged those terms. 
Because again, historically and in my experience, oh, you just saying you biracial, so you don't have to say you black. You trying to take the out. I've never had an out. Now, see, that brings up a question that after the break, I want to get into about how can we fix those moments that you had on the eighth floor? Mm. How, what can we do as fellow black folks, capital B, <laughs> to make better choices when we see a quiet Negro across the room and figure out whether or not they're a hater, whether or not they're an ally? Right, <laughs> this right. is Beyond the Scenes. We'll be right back. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Beyond the scenes, we're bringing it home, talking blackness, what it means to be black and whether or not you can place all of that blackness at the foot of black politicians and expect them to honor all different quadrants of blackness. Uh, Dr. Blay, uh, before the break, you were telling a very, very wonderful story about a woman who I would assume now is a colleague and how we can sometimes as black people tend to misread one another initially if we think that your blackness is something that is different. What can we do now to better understand each other's black experiences? Because I will say that I feel like artistically we're in a better space now because like I would argue that a cat like Donald Glover or Issa Rae would not have gotten shows or would not have gotten the same looks 25 years ago versus today. I do Mm -hmm. think that young black people that are different who did not come up necessarily in the hood, you know, even Jabuki, who was on with us for a long time, Ashton, I would argue that them taking their identity and owning that, yes, I am black and accept me as I am. Yeah, I like anime and what is, I think, part of it. But what can we do as laymen to better understand each other's black experiences, Dr.? I mean, that's a great question. I want to honor our feelings, though, right? And so the reason why I tell that story is I don't want to throw away the fact that I had a certain upbringing and certain painful experiences. And so that Danielle's presence was a trigger for me. I have to own that. So, right? So that's, that's my job and my work to work through that. The question is always how, you know, is it only through therapy? I don't know. Um, I have to work through that. What could have happened different in that situation it's also then on Danielle to know, okay, you want to understand Blackness. There's certain things that we do as Black people, right? We speak. We're not saying have a whole conversation. Good morning. Good afternoon. Hey, how y'all doing? A nod even. But just to walk with your head up and not acknowledge us, we're going to think about you funnily. Um, <laughs> all right, see, I got a problem right there. I am, I'm in my head all the time. And if me looking down at the ground means like I'm not participating in Blackness, then I'm like, oh, well, I'm sorry. I'm insecure. I guess I'm not Black mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's, so a good, like, that's a good point, too. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's not always all about us, right? We project our stuff on the people all the time. You never know what somebody is dealing with or how they're thinking about it. So that's that's absolutely fair. I guess what I'm struggling with to answer, I'm struggling to answer the question, right? What can we do? I think these conversations are helpful. I think honesty, you know, about who we were. I know so many people over the course of my life who have just straight up lied about where they've been and what they did trying to get their black card checked. Like, you ain't never hung out in the projects. Why are you saying that? I mean, even well, rappers, it, even rappers. What you rapping about? 
So mm-hmm. that's because I was going to ask you. That's it, from my perspective. I mean, it seems like just because it seems like we have all so much baggage with it. That's like gatekeeping blackness is it's on that you're black. You're black. So in my in my in my head, since there is such a big spectrum of blackness, you can't really define it. If you you black, it seems like something that you just can't gatekeep. Right. Uh, be, being black. But that being said, like. I have one hand that feels like I sh- you shouldn't gatekeep blackness because it'll create complexes and insecurities in people. And then on the other hand, I don't want Jack Harlow to be in rap. So I, I have know. to find a way. Okay. I know. Okay. To- so then, so then let's get to the shit then. So then let's get to it. So <laughs> this is the last question. Can you define blackness? Because now if you're going to introduce Jack Harlow into the conversation and go, okay, you have somebody who we think is a culture vulture and it's just coming in and co-opting an experience that speaks to that is rooted in something spiritual that we know you cannot relate to because of your upbringing dog. Where do you put black conservatives when we're trying to define blackness? And we're not just talking about the Clarence Thomases and everybody else who stumped for Trump. I'm not naming names. You know, the names we'll have to (laughs) name the names. They and your family. (laughs) <laughs> but where do you put? All right, give me a Stacy Dash. Give me, give me a Stacy Dash. Then, like, where does that fall on the blackness spectrum? Is that <laughs> should that also be respected as some form of black ideology, even though it's not necessarily traditional? And is that also defined as part of blackness, or is that like a weird boil that we got to burn off? And yeah. free, you know how you remove a bowl, Ashton? What you do? You you freeze that thing and you twist that. <laughs> I think these are difficult. He got to do that to Stacey Day. I think we have to. We, we have to continually put ourselves in these in these situations. This is uncomfortable. I don't have an answer, right? Because nothing fits cleanly in here. Um, again, blackness as a culture. Do we feel some type of way then that the Kardashians got to insert things when it was convenient to make a shitload of money? And then when it's not convenient, you can go back to your original factory settings and date white boys. You they know? took their booties out. They like they straight went back straight to up. 1.0. Which straight is up. another, they, they did another black thing. They went back to their roots. They could not <laughs> stop stealing from black people. That's all. They went back but to their white booties. It's, right. it's hard to say, you know. Um, <laughs> in regards to Stacey Dash, yes. Stacey Dash, you are a black woman. I will not take that from you. You are not in a position to represent black um, people. Omarosa is probably a better example because she had more of a political platform and influence. Yes. Would be a more fair black conservative. Because Some of what Stacey was doing, I could say, was opportunistic and for exposure sure. and to build your career and portfolio. Whereas I feel like Omarosa had more sure. calculated motives. Now, in fairness, yeah. though, it's interesting. As you name these names, we wouldn't question these people's blackness. You're black. Yeah. I don't think they ever position themselves to say I'm a representative. They don't want to be a representative of the black community. They just want you to take them as they are. Yeah, we nice. might have a better conversation if it's somebody who's who's touting themselves as a representative of the black community. Now we got questions. So to be a representative of the black community, you have to follow those certain ideologies and certain uh, uh, there's me being myself without no uh, 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 communication with the black community. I couldn't be part of the black community. Why would you if not I, have communication with the black community? I'm just saying if I was born us? in a vacuum, if I was born in a vacuum, that's then what you, I'm saying. Why would you represent us? Just because that's, you're I mean, black? No, well, no, that's, that, I don't, I don't no. think skin is enough qualification. So if, uh, and again, this, this conversation around representing black folks, what is your investment in black people's lived experiences? I think that is an important question. And you got to keep your word once you're elected. This is a conversation that we could go on and on and on Mm -hmm. about. Dr. Blay, I cannot thank you enough for coming in here. The book is One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. Ashton Womack has not yet written a book because he is (laughs) too busy going out to New York City comedy clubs slinging (laughs) jokes. Ashton, you need to get your life together. That's why you ain't got no books in your background. <laughs> Step one, read a book. Then you write <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Yava Blay and you. Ashley for taking us beyond the scenes. See you next time. Catch you guys. Bye. 
Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.